Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Dr. Rishi Desai. He's a pediatric infectious disease doctor who was also formerly a member of the CDC working in their viral disease division doing outbreak research. Additionally, he's a chief medical officer at Osmosis and has been a leading voice across pretty much all media types, educating the public daily on the current state of COVID-19. Dr. Desai, welcome to Health Theory. Thanks a lot for having me. You can call me Rishi by my first name. Amazing, man. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really um, excited to get into the current state of this. Give us the most up-to-date learnings. And the things that I care most about are um, obviously what what is actually happening inside the body at the viral level. Um, Is that obviously everything that we do to protect ourselves, the solutions to this are all going to be predicated on us pinning that down? Yeah. So let's get into that. You know, the virus enters your body Typically, you're going to get it in through one of three passageways, your eyes, nose, and mouth, probably mostly your nose and mouth. And once it hits the back of your throat, that's where it starts its journey. It starts infecting cells and gets down into your lungs. And that's been the story for most of this outbreak. We've thought about it as a lung disease and talked about it as infecting you know, the little alveoli and causing damage to the lungs. And I think what we're learning now, you asked me about kind of what's the bleeding edge, I'll tell you it's the blood. And so as you go across from the lungs into the blood vessels, it's what's happening in the blood vessels. And I think that's what we're starting to realize right now. In the past few weeks, we've seen more and more studies talking about strokes in young folks. And so someone your age shouldn't be getting a stroke. You know, you're a healthy person, presumably. And, and now we're seeing strokes in people your age, my age for sure. And that's worrisome. You know, people have thought up until now it's a disease of old people and it's a disease of lungs. And now you tell them, well, there's an actual increased stroke risk. And that's because it causes endovascular damage. It's literally infecting the cells that line the blood vessels and damaging them. And what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like what sets up uh, for a heart attack or a stroke. And that's, I think, the increasing uh, realization that people are having about uh, SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID-19. Yeah, that the the notion of what's going on in the blood to me is, is really interesting. It certainly points at things that we can do to um, ultimately defeat, uh, if I can use that word, the virus. But talk to me a little bit more about what's happening at a cellular level. So the cool thing is I've really started to understand how viruses work. To be honest, like in in the beginning, I always imagined like a a cold virus being able to move, that it had some sort of locomotion. Um, So beginning to understand that's not how it travels, that it has like the spikes on the outside, that it is basically has evolved to attack 
only a few type of cells for the sort of infection site, which is why it goes for things that have a mucosal layer. So your eyes, your nose, your throat, um, and that it has to get on that. But once it gets on that, that the infection, from what I'm told, happens very quickly within seconds. But getting into what's really going on in those cells that are lining the blood vessels, what's actually happening? What is the damage that it's doing? So the first thing I'll say is that think of it as a numbers game, right? So you just mentioned a really uh, classic example. You, you think of it touching you and it getting in and it taking five seconds to do so. That's not how I think of it. I think of it as if there's a lot of it, then yeah, I'm in trouble. If there's a little bit, I'm not in trouble. So there are a number of innate immune defense systems you have in place. And, you know, it's a little bit like, think of another numbers game, you know, sperm creating fertilization. You know, there are a number of reasons why a sperm wouldn't make it to an egg. And it's only because we, you know, have millions and billions of them that you get one to survive. It's a numbers game. Similarly, the virus is trying to play a numbers game. It's going to get stuck by mucus. We have little proteins, defensins within that mucus that are going to deactivate or, you know, attach the, to the virus. We have mucosal antibodies. We have uh, local monocytes. You have all sorts of things set up to allow for you to not get an infection. And if you get overwhelmed, if you get too much virus, then yeah, maybe you'll get an infection. Maybe some cells will get hijacked. Even when they get hijacked, there is a numbers game on the other side. You know, getting one cell infected, technically you might think of that as an infection. And, and maybe some would agree with you. Others would say, well, an infection is when you can detect it. Well, what's a detectable threshold? Is it a single cell? Can we detect a single cell infected? Not really, not that I've ever seen. So you have to have enough of an infection to even detect infection to call it infection. And again, that's a numbers game too. And the reason this matters is take two scenarios. I'm in a grocery store, I grab an apple. Someone sneezed on it two days ago. There was a tiny amount of virus on it two days ago. That's been steadily decreasing as the ambient temperature and humidity in the grocery store is causing the virus to essentially die off. And so the actual threat is pretty low. It's a very, very tiny amount of virus on that apple. But comparing now that scenario to another scenario where you've, you're a healthcare worker, you've intubated a patient, they coughed in your face, they got a lot of inoculum. Then you move to patient two, they coughed in your face. Patient three, they didn't cough, but they sneezed 10 minutes before you walked in. You're getting multiple large inoculums of virus. When you go home that night, you're dealing with a lot more than that person with the apple. So these are two different scenarios. And so numbers matter. And that's why we're seeing so many more healthcare workers that are in that setting get sick when they're healthy and otherwise kind of uh, able-bodied, when in other scenarios, you don't see those same attack rates. So that's the first point I wanna make. Now, the second point is what happens when a cell gets infected? You, you, you correctly point out cells, you know, viruses don't walk around. In fact, that's why isolation works. They don't, they don't cross highways or walk across the street. They don't walk around your body either. And so when a cell is infected, that cell might lice, it might break, and the stuff inside might come out, where does it go? It goes to the immediate vicinity, right? It goes right into that area. Now, there is some aerosolization and things like that that we, we know, and you make bioaerosols even when you speak. And so it does actually make its way out into the environment through that mechanism, but it itself is not moving. It's hitching a ride on a little droplet of mucus, and that's its ride, that's its Uber to get into your you know, workspace. Yeah, the idea of viral load I find really interesting um, in terms of trying to protect yourself 
Um, so obviously being outside, if, if you have to come into contact with somebody for whatever reason, being outside is going to be obviously much better. Um, and then also my understanding is that you have like a, a band of humidity, which is problematic for the virus. So if it's too low, the virus thrives. If it's too high, I've heard that it thrives, but somewhere in like the 40 to 50% range, am I getting that roughly right? Um, that it struggles. Yeah, a lot of the humidity studies and data we have are actually not even on SARS-CoV-2. We have some, but a lot of it is based on other cousin viruses like MERS and SARS uh, from back in 2002. So we're extrapolating and saying, hey, you know, this is another coronavirus. I'm sure it behaves similarly. And so when we look at temperature, humidity data, much of it is from other viruses in the same coronavirus family. You're right. You know, there are two silver linings um, around this virus. One, it's not that hardy. So it's, it's in this fat bubble and it's got a little RNA in it. And that fat bubble, essentially, you get a bit of a cocoon when you have a bit of, um, I call it spittle, but essentially the little bits of stuff that come out of my nose and mouth every time I spit that I can't even see. Technically, they're called bioaerosols. Those land somewhere. Sometimes they float in the air. And when they land or they're floating, they're evaporating, right? So in every moment, they're slowly evaporating. And that surface-to-volume ratio is, is making it more and more likely to evaporate over time. And remember, that's the ride it's hitching. So the more it evaporates, the more it's kind of becoming smaller and smaller. And therefore, it's you know, less prone to just falling on the ground. And so then it really just diffuses in the air. So let's talk about this as an outbreak. So you were working at the CDC looking at literally what we're living through now. One, give me some context. Where do you see this going? What kind of drop off should we expect? I've seen that some of the numbers are beginning to trail off in the US. Are, are we on the decline now? Are we not? Um, and then the thing I care most about is, is this coming back in the fall? Right. So let's go through those in order. Uh, I think things are getting better in most parts of the country. I think things are getting worse in some parts of the country. I think things were getting better and might get worse in some areas. Let me give you a concrete example. Southern California, things were doing pretty well. And then everyone hit the beach this past weekend, so much so that Governor Newsom just said, you know, we're closing the Orange County beaches. Now, what we're possibly going to see in 10 days is all those people that were beachgoers are going to go home. They're going to have more disease overall than they did previously. They're going to spend time with their elderly parents, their elderly in-laws. Those folks are going to get sick. Maybe that'll be eight days from now. And then those folks are going to get really sick, sick enough to go to the ER 18 to 21 days from now. So maybe in three weeks, we'll see a little uptick. And we'll all scratch our heads and think, what, what is this? What happened? It's from that beach incident three weeks ago, guys. That's why you're seeing this now. So we're going to see blips. And this is the challenge, is that the cases that come into the hospital are a lagging indicator of what's actually happening. An example is when you look out at the starry sky, you see light on your iris, right? But that star may be gone. You know, it takes billions of years for that light to hit you. So you're getting a lagging indicator of the reality of your solar system and, and outer space. Cases in the hospital are a lagging indicator of reality. And when you don't have accurate testing on the ground, which we don't, then all you really have to go on is cases. And that leaves you blind for a few weeks as to the reality of what's happening. So that's my sense on what our country is experiencing. Now, all of the models are based on continued social distancing. That's falling apart right now. State by state, we're seeing people lift barriers and saying, hey, it's okay to do, you know, let's say outdoors activities are okay. Golf courses are open now because they're outdoors. 
you know, yard work's okay, uh, landscaping, that industry is okay, construction's okay. As you start opening up industries, you're going to start seeing more and more chance of this sort of uptick. Now, my hope is that we'll see a little uptick, which I imagine we'll probably see maybe regionally, maybe even nationally, but that what happens afterwards is the key. Are we going to close down again? Or are we going to say, well, let's let it ride? Because when you let it ride, you let it ride for three more weeks. Now you've got six weeks because it took three weeks to get that data. <laughs> and then you didn't do anything about it. So now you got a few more weeks to let, let it ride. And so we'll see what happens. But whatever we do is, is really it's a delayed effect. And so if we see a surge, it's because we don't have actual on the ground reconnaissance. We're going by this really old three week old data and we keep making mistakes and fumbling our way through. So that's my challenge or that's the challenge that I see. Are we going to see an uptick in, in uh, fall? There's a good chance because I think what will happen is we're going to keep making these little fumbles along the way. We're like, open, no close, open, no close. And we're not actually closing it down for a significant period of time to really shut it down. And at the same time, we're just now getting contact tracing up and going. We're just now getting testing to the levels where we need it to be, meaning our average number of tests per day in the US, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about 200,000. Where was it the first week of April? 150. So gosh, in the whole month of April, we bumped it from 150 to 200. We need to get to 800. That's the goal. What are we doing? We're slow walking to the solution. We're not running to the solution. Um, now, what I want to know is I don't even think about colds and flus, say, May through September, right? I don't even think about it. The odds, like, I wash my hands like a psychopath from October through April normally, just because I hate getting sick so much, I can't even tell you. But, like, I'm, I'm already a psycho. And as a psycho, I always let my guard down in the summer months. So why is this one so virulent that we still have to be on guard even now as we approach May? Like it is hot as hell here in SoCal right now. Um, I'm just shocked that we that this one sort of defies the normal pattern. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take a word you just said, virulent, and, and hone in on it. So there's contagiousness and there's virulence. So there are some things that are super virulent, let's say Ebola, but not that contagious. What you're worried about is contagiousness. Why is it that people are getting it so much, even in the summer months? And what I think the answer is going to be is that there's just so much disease out there, and it's pretty darn good at getting across. So that could be, one, because the viral load you generate is huge. So maybe it's replicating like mad. And so when you do cough, it's not just a little bit, like 10 to the 6. Maybe it's 10 to the 7. Like Who knows what the exact inoculum is that you're putting out there? It could be effective at actually living in the environment. Maybe it's just a little bit more hardy than I'm giving it credit for, or maybe it lands on larger bioaerosols, so it has a little bit more time before they dry up completely. It could be that it's actually really darn good, and this is actually where I'm putting my bet, at getting attached to that ACE2 receptor in the cell. That's the name of the receptor, and we have ACE2 receptors on different cells in our body. Maybe it doesn't need too many of those receptors to get an infection to go across. Maybe other viruses need many more kind of hits to hit that receptor and tag it, this one just sticks like a, like a lock uh, and a key. Just really, really nice fit. And so it could be a number of those factors. Whatever it is, I think you're right that in the summer months, you're, it's getting warmer and warmer, we're still seeing it. We saw outbreaks in Singapore. Singapore is you know, along that tropical belt. Uh, in many countries along that tropical belt, it's exploding in India right now. So we're seeing it in places where it is fairly humid, fairly hot, and it's still kind of uh, causing a lot of disease. I think resting on this idea that it's gonna just dry up in the environment or that the humidity will kind of get it, 
is probably not realistic. I think what's much more realistic is thinking about it from a person-to-person standpoint rather than an environmental fomite to a person standpoint. Some of that's probably happening, but it's probably much more just person-to-person. So as you think about like protecting yourself and your family, like mm-hmm. the more that we understand what the virus is doing, in fact, I'd love to hear more about the ACE2 receptor, how that works and how that influences how you think about keeping yourself safe. Sure. So a couple of concrete things that I do. So I try, and I'm not perfect at this and I don't expect anyone to be, but I try to batch my grocery shopping. I try to batch my errands and say, let me do one errand and hit up a few different spots. And so I don't have to keep going back out again. Every time I leave the house, that's a chance, especially if I'm going to an enclosed space where there's not as much ventilation. When you're outdoors, I'm going to the park. That's a different ball of wax than if I'm going to a store where the ventilation, even though they, of course, have HVAC systems, they're not ventilating nearly as well and effectively as an outdoors uh, area with a breeze. So it's all about dilution. If you can dilute the virus, whether you do that with water when you're washing your apple whether you're doing that with air as you're going through an outdoor space, whether you're rolling the windows down in Uber, if you're in an Uber, anything you're doing to dilute is is stacking the deck in your favor. So that's the first thing, minimizing (laughs) trips to high-risk locations. High risk is anything that's enclosed. So again, like minimizing and batching your trips. That's the second thing. The third thing is when you're in your home, cohorting yourself to your home. So it's just me, my wife, my son, my dog, right? Like that's our cohort. We stay together and we don't, you know, our son isn't going off anywhere else. We're staying as a unit. And so that's the best you can do is kind of keep your unit safe. If you guys get sick, likely it's everyone in the house that's going to get sick. So protect everyone and make sure everyone's making the same smart choices you're making. You know, masks and coverings. There's a lot of data now on the fact that they're probably helpful and probably need to be mandated, frankly, especially in indoor settings. So that's another thing that people can do is just cover their mouth. It protects the source, so you're not spitting it out. Even if you're talking, as I said, you can get it out there. But also protects you from inhaling it. And there are masks that you can make at home that have pretty good effectiveness at getting viruses screened out, believe it or not. So we can talk about that as well. And the, and the one, I'll just give you the answer there, is polyester um, seems pretty effective with kitchen towels inside. So that's a good strategy. So those are some concrete steps you can take to minimize your chances of getting sick. So talk to me more about the ACE2 receptor. So what's going on there? Why is your money on that? Yeah, so when you look at the ACE2 receptor, it's a receptor that sits on the airways, and we know that that's where the spike protein, you alluded to it, it's called coronavirus because it looks like it has a crown under a microscope, and corona means crown. So it looks like it's wearing a little crown. Well, that crown is studded with little proteins. Those proteins that are studded in its crown are spike proteins. So those are the proteins it's using to attach. What is it attached to? It attaches to a receptor. We call it the ACE2 receptor. That receptor, it's lining many cells. It's lining the cells of the airways, but also it's loaded in the blood vessel cells. So those cells have a lot of ACE2. And as we're seeing more and more disease in the blood vessels, one hypothesis is that that's how it's causing the disease. You know, we know it binds to ACE2 already. Those cells have it. Logical conclusion is probably what's happening. And so my money is on that's where it's binding and that's why it causes a lot of disease. Now there are some ideas, like what if you, for example, inject someone with uh, soluble ACE2, you know, where it's kind of free floating, that ACE2 could bind up the spike protein mm. and, and therefore the spike protein can't bind to your ACE2 because it's already bound to this soluble ACE2. 
So there are ideas out there, and these are more than just ideas. These are actually, some of these are in randomized control trials where they're trying to see if this is a strategy to try to minimize the infectivity of the virus. So this is out there, and this is why I'm, I'm betting on it. That's really interesting. So talk to me about the comorbidities. I know that everybody's on diabetes is wildly problematic. And if you have underlying diabetes, you are in real trouble if you get COVID-19. Um, but I was talking to another researcher and they said that nothing had been officially done around obesity. Have they since then? That was a few weeks ago. It's a good question. You know, in the data that I've looked at, they have talked about obesity as a risk factor, but I can't say with confidence that I've actually reviewed the obesity substrata of patients and, and whether that was not confounded by other factors. But you're right, you know, diabetes, specifically unmanaged diabetes, you know, where you have A1Cs that are really high, you know, that's where the risk is highest. All these conditions are conditions that essentially plague America. Obesity, diabetes, the ones we haven't talked about, you know, coronary artery disease, uh, lung disease, asthma. I mean, these are all problems that many Americans have and carry with them. I think there are a couple of things to notice here. One, it's, it's about function, right? So if you have, let's say, uh, this is how I explain it to my, to, uh, to my son. If you have function that's like this and you take a hit, you're down to here. But maybe that's fine. Maybe you're, you can kind of go on with your data and you notice it. But if your function was already like this and then you go down this, you feel that. You'll be short of breath, you'll be really tired, and you'll be admitted to the hospital. That's one factor. The other factor is the fact that not only are you just losing function, but maybe you're actually hitting the same target. So we know with cardiovascular disease, what's damaged there? the intimal lining of the blood vessels. That's fancy talk for the inner lining of that, of the, of that vessel wall. That's what's damaged. With that, Dude, that, that's really interesting. That. I, I want to stop you there to make sure that I understand this because now pieces just click together from what you, <coughs> you started. Um, so originally what I was hearing was um, part of the reason that diabetes was creating such a problem is you've got high um, HA1C levels, the hemoglobin is getting all clumped up with the sugar and the bloodstream is making oxygen transport very difficult. So you've got a disease that's already exacerbating uh, or lowering your ability to get the oxygen coupled with another comorbidity that does the same thing. And now you have this double whammy and you've got a real problem, which explains why intubating people with the ventilators isn't working. It's not a mechanical problem. This is a, in the bloodstream. You're just not able to shuttle the oxygen properly. Um, when I think about heart disease, and again, I could not be more of a novice, but when I think about heart disease and the way that it attacks the lining. And I think what a lot of people misunderstand and, and uh, correct me if I'm explaining this improperly is that when you get plaque buildup, it's not like it's clumping together inside the normal transit part of the blood vessel. It's actually in the lining of the blood vessel. And so it creates like this bulge. And so if that's a like inflammation issue with the epithelial lining, if I'm not mistaken, and this is further inflaming that area, um, then this makes sense as to why this would exacerbate the problem. And just from the little bit that I know about the sort of physiological impact of obesity, fat is a signaling organ, which is crazy to think about, um, but that is pro-inflammatory. So if you, you have all these crazy inflammatory markers, and then that leads into the cytokine storm, it, it's sort of all starting to make sense. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You're, you're right in describing it. It's, it's causing a bulge. And so in some cases, obviously, you'd have some breakage there in that lining or the covering of that bulge. But the fact is, you're right, it's in the walls. And it causes that thing to bulge out. And when it bulges out, if you damage the thing that's lining it, 
then yeah, now you've got all this fatty, gooey mess that's gonna cause lots of inflammation and can cause heart attacks and strokes and things like that. Because that starts to break apart and create uh, essentially a blood clot right there. That's how strokes happen now and heart attacks. Now with um, COVID-19, you talked about the phrase cytokine storm and it's out there, people talk about it. There is a lot of increasing evidence that that's exactly right. And specifically, there's one called IL-6. Can you describe for people exactly what a cytokine is? It's because once I understood yeah. what it does, I was like, okay, I get why this is a problem. Yeah, totally. Let's say that I'm in a room full of other people and I'm a cell and I've got to communicate things to the people around me. Well, I can't just like, speak I'm, I, cells don't have voices they don't have you know the ability to just talk through words so they talk through molecules and these molecules they're not words they're they're cytokines and so cytokines and which cytokines you put together and the the number of cytokines all tell a story so if i'm screaming in other words if i'm letting out a lot of il6 i'm telling a story to all the cells around me that like hey i'm dying i'm going down here and things aren't going well for me are they going well for you and and if all the cells are screaming and they're all letting out IL-6, well, now you can detect that in the blood. And you can check someone's IL-6 level. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is high. The cells are screaming. They're in danger. And this isn't going well. And so that's what a cytokine is. It's, it's basically a way of, a, of one cell talking to its neighbors. It's, it's words. And we can detect them. And we can put together a story based on what we think IL-6 means in the context of the other words. And that one I'm talking about a lot because we know that, for example, kids are doing better than the elderly with uh, COVID-19. And if you look at their cytokine profiles, you see why. They have lower levels of a lot of these cytokines, specifically IL-6, but also some other ones that may tell you that actually kids with ARDS are doing better because of these profiles looking better. And maybe that cytokine storm is a warning from the cells that, hey, uh, the ship is going down here. Correct me um, if this is inaccurate. So to sort of use your analogy of the screaming that the cytokines are basically screaming saying or the words that they represent are dear immune system come and address this attack this thing i'm going down you need to get this thing and so the reason that the cytokine storm becomes a problem is you have every cell screaming out immune system come and like attack this motherfucker and so now the immune system is going bananas and you actually get the immune system just attacking everything because it's on such high alert it's like shooting first and asking questions later and so the the body has essentially it's got this military that's now shooting everything in its sight and diving into sort of at a cellular level what's happening if your body is already you have diabetes you are obese you already have all this inflammation you already have cytokines saying yo we have a problem and now now you throw this other thing in if you have a high viral load and just literally every cell is crying out that it has a problem you get how the immune system becomes trigger happy and and just goes bananas exactly and by the way the immune system is also part of the problem right it's releasing some il6 too but what the immune system tries to do is say like hey we need to make the blood vessels here a little leaky so that our immune cells can get in and, and deal with whatever the problem is. Whoa, whoa, I've never heard that before. What do you mean, leaky? So when a blood vessel is passing by an airway, normally it's not leaky, meaning liquid can't get out of that blood vessel. So it's nice and tight between cells lining that wall. Well, when you have inflammation, just think of when you've fallen and banged your knee, 
you have inflammation there. Well, it gets puffy, right? And like immediately it kind of swells up. What is swelling exactly? Well, it's leakage of liquid out of the blood vessels and into the tissues. Whoa. So endothelial cells, instead of being nice and tight like I'm showing you right here, they become more like that. And as a result, stuff is getting through. Well, some of the stuff is good, right? It's immune cells getting through. That's great. Good job. Good on you for you know sending out the immune cells. But it's also fluid. And so that's what happens when you bang your knee or bang anything. It's kind of swollen and puffy. That's fluid getting through, right? So your blood has things other than blood cells and white blood cells. It also has serum, right? So the serum component has a lot of proteins. So that's antibodies. That's a big part of it. And those antibodies are going to be necessary to be part of this immune uh, response. So you want these proteins to get over there. You also have albumin and other proteins too. So they're getting across. Uh, albumin doesn't get across, but the other proteins do. And the reason that this is important is that if you now have leakiness, not just in one area, but in all areas, because you, again, you're screaming all over the body and you know, the immune system's kind of like going bang, bang, bang. All right, we have to respond everywhere. Well, what happens when you get... It, kind of diffuse leakiness. Well, now you've got a lot of wetness. You've got a lot of uh, extra fluid that's sitting between the airspace over here and the blood vessel. Before the blood vessel and the airspace were nice and tight, now you're filling up with fluid because, again, they're leaky, right? The fluid's got to go somewhere. It's going in between. And now you're asking oxygen to get all the way from here to here, and it's got a lake to swim through now that it never used to have to swim through, right? What do you think that happens? a lot less oxygen gets across. And so you become hypoxic. And so that hypoxemia that we're talking about, you know, with, uh, with this and the shortness of breath, you get all, all that stuff, that's in part due to this massive lake you've created. And you're creating it not just in one part of the lungs, it's all over. And so you've got all this fluid now that's preventing oxygen from getting to where it needs to go, which is the blood vessels. And that's a big part of what happens with uh, with SIRS or when you get a systemic inflammatory response uh, syndrome. Uh, and that's what happens. ARDS and uh, diffuse inflammation causes fluid to get everywhere. In fact, it also gets in your tissues. So a lot of these patients end up being super puffy because they've just got fluid everywhere. There's fluid onboarded and their kidneys can't push it out because all all, oftentimes their kidneys are failing. So you end up getting into a very positive fluid balance as a result. And that's what happens not just in this disease, but in a lot of diseases where the end state is this massive inflammatory state. Does that make Man. sense? Oh my God, very much so. Really being able to grasp what's going on is super powerful. And I guess I'm, now I'm talking to the audience, like this stuff begins to stack. Like since I started doing health theory, it's like, you know, one person will say one thing and you kind of hold on to it, but you don't really understand like where that goes. And then another person says something and you just begin to like, put all of this stuff together to, I guess, get a deeper understanding of why it's so important to take care of your health. And when I can imagine something, when I can picture the state of my blood vessels, like it actually gives me more motivation to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. I want to eat ice cream and play video games all day. That's what I want to do. Um, but, you know, I work out and I eat right and, and all that stuff. Um, and it, it really, really helps like to actually piece these things together. Speaking of the pieces that are coming together. You mentioned serum, and I want to talk about passive um, immunity, what we're finding with blood plasma, like what's the, the state of that? Yeah, great great question, and thanks for uh, breaking it down like that for your audience. Uh, I, I feel the same way, that when I understand something, I care about it. If I don't understand it, I don't care. And if I care about it, 
I'm much more inclined to do something about it because caring equals motivation. As far as serum goes in plasma, let's be really clear. We've done this many times before. This is not new. In fact, for many viruses, let's take a, a very classic virus, measles. You can, today, you can go in if you're a high-risk patient and if you're in the setting of an outbreak of measles, you would be given measles antibody. Uh, that's a thing. In fact, if you have other conditions, you might have heard of the phrase IVIG. What is that? That's intravenous in the vein, Ig immunoglobulin. So this is extremely common. And the new thing is we're trying with COVID-19 because we're saying, hey, we've tried it with all these other diseases. Maybe it works here too. Of course it works. It makes sense. It's logical. What it is, is let's say between you and I, let's say that I get COVID-19 and I do fairly well and I recover. And in the weeks afterwards, you check my blood. And of course, as you would predict, I get an immune response and I have antibody floating around. I have a lot of it. So you basically take that antibody and you purify it. And then let's say you get COVID-19 and unfortunately you don't do so well for whatever reason, you end up in uh, the hospital and you go to the ICU and you're sick and you're on other medications. You're on antivirals and you're on steroids and they're like, yeah, you know, we don't know how he's going to do it. We really hope for the best, but who knows? In that situation, they would give you my antibody. As long as other things are cleaned up about it uh, and you wouldn't have a reaction, they would give it to you. And what we've seen is that generally speaking, when it's done, it works. It, it seems to you know, make people better. Now here's the catch. I purposely mentioned you're on steroids and you're on antivirals. Well, what made you better? Was it the passive immunity? Was it the other stuff you're on? Was it the fact that time passed, your immune system kicked in? Who knows? And the question is not, does it work, but how much does this work? Is this moving the needle a lot? Or is it like, yeah, it's good, but you know, that's not really what made him better. So that's what we're trying to figure out, uh, is how much of a benefit you really get from this. And in the coming days and weeks, of course, we're gonna start seeing plasma drives where you, know, you say, hey, you know, if you've recovered, go donate blood, but also donate plasma to help those that are sicker than you. Uh, this is a national effort. This is gonna happen. And so it's just a matter of kind of figuring out what levels we accept what levels we think are safe, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask the obvious question. How on earth would that not be 100% effective? Yeah, great question. So the first thing is that I'm giving you antibody, but antibodies are proteins and proteins break down. So it's a little bit like I'm giving you fish. I didn't give you a fisherman. So I didn't teach your cells how to make the antibody. Only, only a vaccine can do that. I just gave you the fish. And that will turn over over time, it'll degrade. In fact, in some cases, a, a, a quick example of this is that many cases where uh, you do need IVIG infusions, what's the frequency of those infusions? Monthly. So you might need a monthly infusion of IVIG. Well, why? Because it breaks down. And so the question is, how do you respond with your immune system? Well, a crash course in immunology, here it goes, is you have your innate immunity. We talked a little bit about that, mucus, you've got some cells, that's all part of your immu innate immunity. Then you've got your adaptive immunity, which is really characterized by kind of two big categories of cells. Uh, there's a third, but mostly it's your B cells and your T cells. Those two categories of cells are doing different things and they work together. And so you wanna be able to, for example, track down infected cells and destroy them. Does antibodies do that? It helps, but that's not the actual cell destroying the other cell. So there are other parts of your immune system that you need to fight this effectively. And antibody helps a little bit, you know, it's like bringing the violins to the game, but you still need the whole orchestra to make this sound right. And that's just a part of it, not all of it. So yeah, it helps. It doesn't cure the infection completely. You know, I actually have a question. I can't believe I've never asked anybody this. Why are um, vaccines so hard to create? Like if, 
if you know this is one of the main strands of this virus, slap it around or whatever people do to weaken it and inject it. And obviously there's a reason that this, <laughs> that it's hard. So I'm not saying that like I've solved something. I'm just curious, what, what is it that makes it hard? Yeah, so it's, I wouldn't say it's hard, it's just time consuming. So there's preclinical trials, that's where you weaken the virus or do whatever you're gonna do to kind of figure this out. That happens and happened on a course of a few weeks for COVID-19. So vaccine manufacturers got their act together. They worked hard on this because everyone obviously sees the need. And over the matter of weeks, let's say six to eight weeks for some of them, they got the vaccine ready for phase one. Amazing, that's pretty fast. Phase one is a safety study. Is it safe? Okay, that makes sense. That happens over a few weeks. Uh, phase two is immunogenicity. So if I give you the vaccine, why don't I measure some stuff to see if, did you mount an immune response? I can maybe measure your uh, antibody levels. Maybe I can look and see if your T cells are responding. I can do these things to see if there was any sort of effect. Those things all happen relatively quickly. Now here's the kicker, phase three. Phase three of these trials is where it takes forever. And I'll tell you why. Basically what you're doing at that point is you're saying, all right, it's safe. There's some sort of immune response. Does it work in a clinical trial setting? And the key here is it's called vaccine efficacy, not effectiveness, efficacy. So vaccine efficacy is in a controlled environment. If I vaccinate a bunch of people and then I follow another group of people that didn't get vaccine, does the group that got vaccinated have a lower rate of disease? Well, how are you gonna know that? Well, you're gonna know if they catch the disease at a lower rate. Well, if we're all isolating, we're all kind of trying to keep ourselves protected and cocooned, you're not gonna really see a difference in these two groups, right? It's gonna take a while to see a difference. And so these trials can last like 12 months, 18 months to really see a difference in efficacy between these two populations, right? That's statistically significant. And it's a large group of people you gotta get to even do it to notice that tiny difference, right? So that's the phase three trial, it takes forever. Phase four is vaccine effectiveness. Now you launch it in your country or your kingdom or whatever it is that you have, and you say in real life, are we seeing that? And what if in real life, People can't get the vaccine because it's only given in one city and the people in the rural areas are like, I couldn't get vaccinated. I didn't get it. You know, I didn't decide to do it. Or you have people saying, I don't want to get vaccinated. I don't trust it. It might have something in it that's dangerous. Or you have people that say, uh, I can't give the vaccine here at my clinic. We don't have a fridge. And you told me it has to be within this certain temperature. And we, we just have power outs. So, you know, the vaccine went bad. All sorts of logistical and practical and social issues that prevent you from getting the same effects that you got in the vaccine efficacy trial where literally your population is not benefiting at all, maybe, even though technically they could have. That's the effectiveness of Now, here's the kicker. Have you heard of human challenge studies, or is this something you're familiar with? I have because I cheated, and I've obviously done a lot of research um, yeah. for this episode. Uh, but please, tell people what it is. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's, it's giving a person the virus. And on the face of that, sounds super unethical. Oh my gosh, you're giving people the virus? This, this thing that we're all told to, to wash our hands and wash our apples over, and now you're giving it to people? How could that be okay? And I'm not here suggesting that it is okay. All I'm gonna tell you is that this is a thing. The WHO has a whole written piece about it. They do, the, it has been done. And the idea is that there are ways to mitigate the risk. You take low-risk individuals that otherwise had a good chance of getting the natural virus you know, from their community, and then you make sure they get the best monitoring and the best care. And that's your way of essentially saying, all right, this is our way of minimizing the harm. And if you can get a handful of people that you can literally just, let's say you spray them in the face like a cologne bottle with the virus, let it get into their eyes, nose, and mouth, 
you can A, figure out what dose they, they need to even get sick. So now we finally know the viral dose or not going to need, which right now we're sort of conjecturing about, but then you would know. And then you could say, okay, well, given that dose, the people that got vaccinated actually did quite well. And the people that didn't, didn't. And so we think that this was very protective and you can do it in a small cohort of people because you're actually giving the virus rather than just like sitting back and waiting for things to naturally happen. And that condenses the timeline. And that's what the whole ethical argument is about is, is a week saved on the vaccine trial, presuming that it's a successful one, you get the vaccine out to people, is that justifiably uh, okay for then turning around and doing something like giving people the real virus? Is that trade-off acceptable? And people can debate that and should debate that, but that's what human challenge studies are. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about vitamin D. How important is it? If I'm not mistaken, there's actually uh, levels certainly that are too low um, to provide any real benefit, but there's also levels that are too high, which I had never heard that before. Yeah, it's a good question. So the uh, there is, like most things, the more you dig, the more the controversy there is. Uh, vitamin D is no different. So there is some controversy around it. What I'll say is that the Endocrine Society put out levels that I personally think make the most sense. They suggested something like 75 nanomoles per liter as a, as a target. That 75 nanomoles per liter target, in my personal opinion, might even be a little higher. It might be okay, you know, maybe 100 or so. So when you get up to those levels, what they've said in the endocrine papers, at least, is that it really promotes bone health. It promotes... Um, uh, protection against viruses is one thing and, and infections in general. So a number of kind of categories of disease. But among them was, uh, as, you, as you just had me say, respiratory viruses. And so another study said, hey, if you give people vitamin D, do they get less respiratory virus illnesses? And the answer was emphatically yes. And in fact, that was mostly in people that were very vitamin D deficient. So they said if you were less than 25 nanomoles per liter, which is pretty low, uh, and then you got a daily dose in that study, they said, you know, about 5,000 per week, then you stand to benefit the most in terms of having a reduction in the number of respiratory illnesses you got. That was a recommendation. The Endocrine Society said, well, let's zoom out, not just to respiratory infections, but let's look at bone health and these other kind of factors and say maybe the target should be your target level. The other one didn't have a target level, but your target level may ought to be around 75. And to get there, you might need 2,000 units per day if you're an adult. So that was their recommendation. The only reason I'm suggesting that maybe even a little bit higher might be okay is there were studies done uh, looking at folks like lifeguards uh, in the Midwest and uh, folks living in Hawaii and uh, East African tribes that, that essentially are out in the sun more. And in those groups, those three different groups, the levels were much higher, above 100. And so the question is, perhaps a normal level for a human being is above 100, and not sure how much higher, but let's say 100 at least, and perhaps the reason all of us are essentially much lower, or many of us, is because we're indoors, we're wearing a lot of clothes, we're hunkered behind our laptops like you and I are right now, and this is our kind of new lifestyle, right? Like even when we go out to, to work out, many of us go to the gym, which is covered and you know, you're not really getting the sunlight that, that human beings were essentially uh, evolved to develop and, and kind of live with. And so we're all essentially pretty deficient and that maybe in the absence of that, we do need supplements to get us back to a normal healthy level to boost our immune health among other things. And from the reading I've done, it definitely seems beneficial to get more sunlight for most of us. And there are certain groups that are at high risk. So for example, if you're darker skinned tone, like you know, I'm darker than you, for example, if I'm out there and you're out there, 
you're benefiting more than I am. And so I'm at higher risk of developing deficiencies. And we see this in terms of like latitude bands as well. So probably in certain groups, there should be monitoring or routine surveillance of vitamin D levels. Um, the other thing is testing itself is not great. So sometimes you can take the same sample of blood, test it five different ways and maybe get kind of scattershot results. And so that is a separate problem of you know testing reliability. But on the vitamin D point, I think generally what most people agree on is there is value to getting more sunlight from the sun. There is more value. I mean, also psychological benefits as well, which we didn't even talk about. But, but there's also value of, of probably taking supplements if you're not able to do that. And most people are probably deficient. Yeah, vitamin D is, uh, is implicated in a lot of things. That definitely seems like one that people should really be going out of their way. Um, it's my understanding, though, that if you're over whether you're supplementing or getting into the sun, it's my understanding that at some point your body begins to break it down. I didn't think your body would let you go, quote unquote, too high. Um, is that not true? So the societies have put out thresholds and they say, you know, you should probably be careful of vitamin D toxicity above a certain level. But like most things, if we can chemically reduce it to a, a pill, and if you, let's say, take 50 of those pills on a day, probably you can overdose on vitamin D in a way that could potentially hurt you. That, like, there's probably uh, clear evidence of that. Having said that, I think that the pendulum clearly is swung in the area of deficiency, not overdoses at the moment. And so I think that doing it in a smart and kind of uh, stable way over time makes a lot of sense and that we probably should be advocating for more vitamin D for people in general. Rishi, where can people connect with you, man? You're putting out so much rad information. What is the best place to connect? Well, thank you. Uh, I, I love the word rad, so uh, it's nice to hear it. Uh, I will say that um, you know we're we're basically putting out COVID-19 content on osmosis.org/slash/COVID-19, so that's all free. Uh, we even have CME courses for those of your audience members that need CME. It's a free course, so go check it out. Continuing um, but medical education. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the, the acronym there. And it's, um, you know, it's aimed at health professionals. But honestly, it's I think it's just aimed at anybody that's motivated and interested uh, can follow it. And so, yeah, go go check out that site again, osmosis.org slash COVID-19 to, to get, you know, the latest uh, information as, as we know it. Amazing. Well, dude, thank you so much. One last question. If you were going to have people make a single change that you think will have the biggest impact on their health and preventing getting COVID-19, what change would you have them make? You know, I just did a video uh, today about climate change, and it's about climate change and COVID-19. And I do think that we're very focused on COVID-19, rightly so. I think that when you're thinking about things that feel like future threats, like climate change, that feels a little bit amorphous. Um, as a human brain goes, I think we have a harder time wrapping ourselves around that. And for climate change and for health and for a number of other reasons, I personally would recommend uh, going out and eating some vegetables today. And I, I can't think of anything that's more important than the fiber you get, the nutrients you get, the, uh, the sense of fulfillment from healthy proteins you get from eating vegetables. So that's what, that's what I would recommend. All right, man. All right. Well, thank you so much, man. And again, guys, the content that he's putting out truly is rad. Uh, you will enjoy it. He is putting out a lot. There is a ton of content. Osmosis is putting out a lot of free stuff that's really amazing. Highly encourage you guys to check it out if you haven't already. And speaking of things that if you haven't done, you should do. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.
Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.